You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And we are back. We're after uh, we keep having these little mini hiatuses, unfortunately, due to weird back end shit that keeps happening to us. But we're back and we have a great guest and we're, we're here to talk, Tracy. So talk. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've talked plenty of times before about I'm so excited to have this person on and it's always <laughs> true. Um, but like this is a different kind of excited because um, I have not seen this guest in person in Good Lord, John, how long has it been? It's probably been pre-pandemic at this point, right? Yeah, we're going to like four years or something. That's oh wonderful my gosh. to see your face again. Yeah, it's really good to see you too. So the voice that you're hearing there is John Wiswell, um, who is such a favorite of mine that he's actually been a pick of the week of mine before, um, where it was just like, I, don't, I have to look up what episode that was, where it's like your your assignment is to go forth and find Wiswellian things and, and read them, <laughs> um, which is Wiswellian is like, what if... What if despair, but also joy, as opposed to Orwellian? Yeah. Um, so, it's a minor. Know. It's a spectrum. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's a, it's a bit different of a vibe. It's so awesome to have you on. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you both so much for having me. Yeah, we, uh, and basically I, wanted, yeah. we wanted to have you on so you could go uh, row by row in the bookshelves behind you and tell us each and every title, uh, <laughs> who wrote it, where you got it, uh, what's the story behind it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's a nice, yeah. it's a nice bookshelf. I like it. I like it. Thank you. Yeah, my mom and I actually built this ourselves. When uh, when I moved into the area, we went and got a bunch of spare wood that somebody was going to throw out, and we said, "Don't do that. I could put yeah. a lot of books on that." And this yeah. became the first project when I moved in here. Uh, nice, nice. That is. Uh, I think, it, I think it has... there's, there's there's certain people who love bookshelves, and I am definitely one of them. Uh, <laughs> when I tried to sell the house, my realtor was not one of them because it was the first thing she wanted gone was all the bookshelves. <laughs> oh, my okay, my but... rule is I'm only allowed one bookshelf though. You're not allowed to accumulate okay. any more hoard than this. So what I did was I built quite a large bookshelf <laughs> that I yeah, and then it's like, well, I broadcast from in front of it. You know, I do panels from in front of it. It's it's legal. It's it's got multi. <laughs> purpose yeah you want to establish it as kind of a backdrop of of your profession as it were um yeah, yeah. I, okay I so seeing, i have to ask I, hold on hold on hold on i keep oh, seeing okay, the okay. meme because i'm not done with bookshelves yet i keep seeing the meme <laughs> i'm not done either that is the uh uh, uh build bookshelves around your couch mm. seen this? oh okay so, they, so you have bookshelves on the sides and then the back and that's where like books can go and then you can put lamps on the side as kind of like a table oh so you're like in your book throne but yeah, you, you've yeah. got you've got your normal couch. You couldn't do it with a reclining couch, obviously. So don't do like a reclining couch. But you, it, you've got your couch, and then you've got bookshelves all around it, and that makes a, a nice little space. And I was like, hey, if you did that to the entire fucking house, and every single wall was a bookshelf, yeah, there you might be some sort of books. system by which you could lift one of the shelves, and there's a window behind it, and like and that's then, how you see. Yeah, them. <laughs> and then what about what about what about if you took your stairs and and each stair was actually a secret bookshelf that slid out? Oh, like a big drawer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I was I was going to ask a moment ago, like where we stand as a group with the Pinterest fueled color coded bookshelf move, no, that's as just, opposed yeah, to. That's okay, no, not that. Patrick's a hard no. <laughs> no, that's just. Uh, that is uh, more effort than I'm willing to put in, but good for them is where I'm. I, I tend to be very much in the camp of whatever makes you happy and it hurt no one. Um, mm. it, but I, I do look at it sometimes and be like, 
I would never be able to sustain that. Like I could see myself being like, I'm going to do it and like taking everything off the shelves and doing it once. But it would be like me with my pantry, right? I'll do that once a year. And for like two months, my pantry is this glorious space where things make sense and you can find stuff. And then it turns into like an avalanche. And that would yeah. that would be what would happen. Yeah. See, apparently- I, I- Go ahead, John. I just say that my bookshelves will only ever be color coded in two tone. They will be red and they'll be unread. And that'll be it. There you go. Yeah. I, I, I apparently uh, hurt Michelle and Emily from Beyond the Trope. I hurt their brain because uh, on one of my shelves. So so I have I have a couple of different series, the entire series on these shelves. And, and uh, one I have number one starting on the left and then each subsequent issue going to the right. And on the next shelf, I did it the other way and I had number one on the right and then went two, three, <laughs> counting five backwards. Yeah. And that hurt their brain. That yeah. made that they were like, you cannot do that. You have to, why, why, why flip this, flip this immediately. Why are you doing this? So, but did they have an opinion about which one had to be flipped? I think they, it was the the second one. The second so the, okay, all right. One, so one has to be on the left, and the highest number has to be on the right. Counting down, up. not cool. Only counting yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, see, yeah. got it. But if if one shelf was manga, which you read in yeah. the other direction anyway, then I think right, that right. would be completely street legal. Or in Hebrew, like yeah. same time. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm I, gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna confess something here. The only manga I have is actually the adaptation of Gail Carriger's first three books. Sweet. Oh. It was done in manga. And and I got them because they're so hard to get. And then I had her sign. Mm. Mm. Right, right, right. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all so, so that was a very funny conversation because she explained to me how she actually had those made. So manga, as you know, can be very, uh, we'll say androgynous, <laughs> right? With, with their character designs. And mm. her main character in those first three books is not. And yes. we will say that she is incredibly well endowed in a certain area. Okay. And so Gail, when they were doing character designs, Gail just kept going, no, 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 bigger. <laughs> oh, dear. And they would come back with a design and she'd be like, no, 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 bigger. And she just okay. had to keep doing that. <laughs> okay. At a certain point, I'm a, I wonder if she was just trying to see, like, how far can I make them go? <laughs> um, like, it's... It, it, just like it's brinkmanship. Like it's only having blue M and M's in your rider. It's seeing will they do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 not about the blue M and M's. This is the test. I just want to see who I'm working with here. I I did that once. I don't know. I, like very very long time ago, I was invited to a, a a thing in Colorado Springs called Author Fest, and they wanted me to come down and teach writers how to do social media marketing kind of stuff. Hmm. And they asked me, you know, for a list of things what do I need to do this? And I, and I, and I put like, I need a projector and I did. And, and then just me being a smart ass, I said, I need a pound of like green M&Ms. And I was just joking. Like, and when I got there, there was a pound of green M&Ms. Oh, <laughs> you're a Bless. star, Patrick. <laughs> nice. They figured you had a plan. Did yeah, you feel obliged? GT. Like, oh, shit, I have to use these as like a learning prop now or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, 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 yeah, JT did that. He went like to a candy store where they you could get whatever you wanted. And he like ordered green M&Ms from me. It was hilarious. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, I mean, we... <laughs> 
there's no green in Eminem's writer contract on on getting on getting John Wiswell on your show here. But there was some talk in advance about questions and stuff. And I guess in the spirit of questions, it's fair for you to know that like the main reason why I was like, oh, my God, this is the perfect time to get John on because John knows I've been bugging him for a while about coming on, uh, partly because his his first novel is coming out in April and he was always like can we wait a little bit because April 2024 is like a long ways away and I was like good John uh but then of course uh, Hugo nominations came out and DIY uh published on door on tour.com uh was honored yet again with a nomination and so that created as good an excuse as any for me to go and hit up John again and be like hey come on um but yeah, that means, I mean, you've kind of crossed this insane Rubicon in having been a, a, a terribly productive short story author for really, really prolific for a long time now. And now actually you've got this novel that is, um, I'm assuming in its final painful editing process and, <laughs> and soon to be in the arms of the people who will, who will make it a whole big thing. That has to be that has to be kind of surreal for you. Like that, that sort of expansion to this extensive project and, and all of that. Like, can you talk about that some, how this journey has gone? Sure. Yeah. Cause I've been writing novels for a long time. I guess I just need to get good at it. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> uh, it is very surreal to, to finally be talking about cover art, to be doing final edits on, on this story that has been in my heart for many years and has been, on my hard drive for about two or three years, I am madly in love with it. The The novel, for uh, your listeners, is called Someone You Can Build a Nest In. It's a monstrous love story. If John Carpenter's The Thing were to infiltrate Beauty and the Beast, you might get something like this. Um, it is. Uh, it follows a... Uh, uh, shape-shifting horror she is the she is the monster of her dominion similar to your dracula or your medusa uh she just wants to be left alone in her lair and unfortunately your monster hunters and your kings and your knights just will not leave her alone um and at one point she is badly injured and she falls off a cliff and she thinks it's, this is it i guess this is how i'm slayed and then she wakes up and there's a perfectly nice human who is nursing her back to health and she has no idea how to handle a human being actually being kind to her uh, and at first she's like, well, I guess I'll, I'll eat her now. Oh, she's feeding me. Okay. I guess I'll eat her tomorrow. Uh, uh, well, uh, she's carting me to town and tending to my wounds. Okay. Maybe the next day. And they just get closer and they get closer. And she feels like, oh my God, this is a person who I could actually spend my life with. This is bizarre. Uh, I, but I have to tell her that I'm not just like a victim of the monster. I'm actually the monster. She should probably know that, uh, before she falls in love with me. Uh, and uh, as she's about to confess, the, mon- the, uh, the lady who she's been living with goes like, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm in the region hunting this horrible shape-shifting monster. Do you know where we can find it? <laughs> uh, and so it's... Uh, it's dun, you know, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, we've all fallen in love with somebody who was hunting us to the death. You oh, know, it just oh, happens. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Oh, hold on. I got the perfect sound effect for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, the, the novel is, to many degrees, an extension of through lines of my work. I've always been interested in the characters that are treated as sidelined or not even being included in a narrative. The characters who are not supposed to have stories told about them. Uh, characters that are demonized unjustly. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm the guy who writes, like, The Haunted House, but it'll behave if you'll just please live in it. It won't kill you. It won't eat your family. Uh, I'm the guy who writes the werewolf story about the werewolf trying to shackle himself up 
before the full moon rises so that nobody will get hurt. Um, and so a lot of my short story career has frankly, uh, built me to the, built my skills to the point where I could write about more of the internal life of a, of a creature. Uh, and I've loved exploring her world. She's been one of my favorite fictional playmates, uh, I've ever had. Um, and I feel like one of the big divergences, frankly, is that novels give you so much room, more room for consequence. Uh, I love mm -hmm. characters who make mistakes because I sympathize with them. I've been there too. Uh, and a novel gives you room for a mistake to have more than one or two consequences for things not to be wrapped up so quickly to see the fallout and to give you the opportunity to take agency after things have fallen out of your hands one or two yeah. times. Um, and so you get to see much more of someone's growth. Uh, and to spend that kind of time with somebody, it deepens our empathy for a character. And one of my favorite things that literature has given me is every great piece of literature is deepened the way that I have compassion for other people. Uh, mm -hmm. That's hard to follow, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, well, like I, yeah, no, go ahead, sir. Sorry, about no, that. I, I, I was just gonna say what, what's, what's cool, and you, you keep saying, you know, Wiswellian. Uh, one of the things about John, it, it, we've been sitting here for, you know, sixteen minutes recording, but like twenty minutes or something like that. He hasn't stopped smiling. <laughs> Even even when he's talking about you know deep deep stuff, he's still smiling, and and so that just that just tells you a lot about him as a person and his character, in my opinion. When like he's he's enjoying yeah. this. He he and he's very passionate about this, and but it brings him joy, and he's smiling about it the whole the whole time. <laughs> well, cool. and you talk you talked about that through line that like there's this there's a tendency in your work to visit characters who have not been given the opportunity to have their own narrative or to to be treated as if they even could have a narrative and it's clear that this brings you delight like yeah. even when you make their lives complicated even when you, you you know you hurt them a little bit and mess things up for them a little bit and they have to kind of pick up the pieces and figure out now what there's there's a kind of delight in that process of taking this background character or this this prop character and turning them into something more fully realized and fully animated. And I think that that delight kind of carries through in the experience of reading your work. Oh, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, I, I love sharing my, my enthusiasm through fiction with folks. Um, and, you know, and to some degree, I am smiling because I have very good company. Uh, that, you know, these kinds of conversations do bring me a, a great deal of joy because we're, we're connecting about what stories give us, you know, there's, there's the delight of having a good story, give you something. And then there's a distinct, distinct and discreet delight to sharing what it was that it gave you. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. It's, so I'm, yeah. please go ahead. I, as you can say, it's funny cause, uh, my oldest friend in the universe, and I think he listens to the podcast. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, he reached out uh, a little while ago because he, he was trying to do some stuff. He's been living in Japan since 99, 2000, somewhere in there. And he realized that he has, you know, his, his English conversationally is not good anymore. And like mm. he, he's lost that skill. And he was, he was wondering if I, if I had any thoughts as a writer, like it, 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 how can I, how, you know, what could he do to improve that? And I suggested audiobooks. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so I kind of went through a little process with him of what it, what would you be interested in? What would hook you enough that you would listen to the whole thing? Because he was like, I won't listen to the whole thing. I won't listen to a whole book. There's no way. And, <laughs> and you're like, ah, challenge accepted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I drilled him down to, uh, believe it or not, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files. Sweet. And, and, and so I got him. I, got, I, I gave him Stormfront as an audiobook. I gave it to him. Uh, and his response has been to call me every name in the book because he can't stop. <laughs> and he's been going through all the books. And, and he, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm done because I'm dreaming about them now. I'm going to stop. I'm going to take a break. And the break lasted one day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, and and he, he's he's getting them from library. He's getting them from wherever he can, you know, because he's just trying to burn through them. And, and sure. it's just hilarious because he's become – he was never particularly passionate about reading. But now these audiobooks have, have like ignited something. And he, so he's listening to all of them and to the point where he just he, – he like sent me a message I think last night saying – When's the new one coming out? <laughs> and I said tentatively 2024, I think. And he's like, oh man. <laughs> oh man. I also love audiobooks. They're godsend. To I do me. too. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I grew up with ADHD and had a really difficult time jumping onto reading off of the page. And one of the big things that that was the lifeline for me was listening to great narrators pull stories together. Uh, and that's frankly, that's how I wound up practicing uh, reading in public was listening to mm-hmm. the narrators that really moved me. Um, I still love I love a good audiobook. Um, mm-hmm. Often I'll, I'll pick yeah. a video game that doesn't have too much narrative. It's it's mostly action, like a Mario Brothers. And then I'll just have I'll just have some like twenty five hour history of like the eighteen hundreds in Alaska going. Uh, okay, uh, you you just blew my mind because I didn't think anyone else did that but me. <laughs> you did. We I found another that. one. Yes, your brain busties. I do that. I, I, but I, I, what I end up doing is I, I get a lot of like the, uh, cause I have the Xbox game pass and then I have the mm. PS plus as well. So I end up getting, uh, the side scroller games or the, the, uh, I have, uh, I have some, some very, uh, basic don't have to think about it racing kind of games. Uh, there's one that's actually on both platforms. It's called Descenders, and it's it's basically you're on a mountain bike and you're just you're riding these courses and you're doing backflips and and three sixties and that kind of crap. And you're just riding in the mountains as and I'm listening to audiobooks as I do that. Or recently, I got the show and I started playing baseball and I took uh, okay. I took, yeah. I took the Rockies to the World Series twice. I took the Cubs <laughs> to the World Series once. Someone has to, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I get those kinds of games that don't have any narrative that I don't have to pay attention to. And I turn the sound off and then I listen to audiobooks as I'm playing the games. Yeah. And I thought I was the only person who did that. I really, <laughs> really did. So it's cool that you do that, too. Yeah, it's wonderful because it, it activates two different parts of your brain. Um, and it's a, it's a mm-hmm. distinct pleasure that I find very relaxing. Um, I think part of me always needs these multiple kinds of stimulation. And so I, I wind up relaxing thanks to those. I love narrative yeah. games. I just play them in a different mindset. Like I loved Disco Elysium. I'm very much looking forward mm-hmm. to Baldur's Gate 3. And Larian always writes very deep, ch- uh, choice-driven stories. Um, 
but there, yeah, there's so much to be said for, uh, especially nonfiction for me, um, mm-hmm. is the, those dense, like, biographies. I just, I'm just going to go through Chester A. Arthur while playing Kirby. You know, like, it's just, that's what, that's <laughs> yeah. this afternoon. Uh, it's a it's a it's a culture mashup really is, is yeah. what you're indulging in at that point <laughs> yeah i think i do go for the power clash i i, I love yeah. a good video game that is not one thing like the book that i'm listening to right and be like i'm i think i'm going to do you know i don't know uh, slime rancher you know <laughs> meets you know the the biography of alexander hamilton oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's what we're really kind of talking about here is what it means to, like, find a reader. I mean, we're talking about it from the perspective of mm. being the reader, right? But as people who right. write, we're always writing maybe not with, like, a certain reader in mind. But we know that that no unicorn has ever written a thing which is loved by everyone. That right. you are writing with a writer with a reader with certain kinds of needs in mind, right? And that you you hope they're the one that's going to find this thing that you've created. And you've had, I mean, not to like love hug you too much here, <laughs> but Amana, um, you've made it onto a lot of short lists and long lists and finalist lists and won a lot of awards in the last several years for your work with a rising sort of tide of recognition and, and love from the community for what you do. Which means that you found some readership here, um, which one, awesome, congratulations, always fantastic. But I think there's something to be said for like, what do you think your reader is like? Like, there's clearly more of them out there than maybe you had ever imagined. But like, what do you think, what do you think your reader is like that they keep going like, aha, this is, this is what I want. And also I will nominate it for a Locus Award. (laughs) Yeah, so I just finished my first like tour in three years, and so I, I've been catching up with a lot of readers across various states. I went to Minnesota for Fourth Street, then I did um, virtual Locus through Los Angeles, then I went to uh, ReaderCon in Massachusetts, and finally did an event in New York City. And so I've been talking to just tons of readers, and what I found is that they don't all want the same thing. I just happen to be at a very cozy nexus. Um, no. A lot of them are interested in, I guess what the term now is cozy horror, which does oh. not have a really proper definition. I really think it, it is it is like pornography. It is uh, just whatever you see and, and think it is. Uh, but it for me, like I love to take the tropes from horror um, and do something other than horror with them because horror is not a genre of tropes. It just happens to have accumulated them as it's been causing these effects uh, in various readers. I love the Dickens out of horror. I am always reading or watching or playing it every given week. Um, It's possibly my favorite genre to consume. I just don't write it an awful lot. Uh, And one of the big things that I love in horror is that it makes me feel less alone uh, when I'm in those stories, when I'm in the ominous mood with someone else, some fictional character. Uh, And so then I take that and I go and I write uh, my own stories that are about becoming less alone or having one solitude validated that aren't horror stories. And a bunch of people who do not get the sense of companionship from horror wind up getting it from me, uh, which is a wonderful thing that I can just hand down the chain uh, from horror to others. And I I wind up doing this a lot in science fiction and fantasy as well. There's a lot of um, 
desire to see things humanized that otherwise had just been demonized for the rest of your reading existence. Um, I myself am a queer writer and a disabled writer, and I have been othered for a lot of my existence that I've been taught. Hide, uh, hide your existence. Try to pass as able. Try to pass as straight, and you'll be in less danger. Um, and so those themes wind up coming up in my fiction an awful lot. And it turns out there's an awful lot of readers who feel a great degree of relief at seeing uh, the things that represented them harmfully uh, now humanized. Uh, and so I, I ceaselessly am fascinated with going into the internal lives of the things that are that are put on the margin. And I say things because I'm often looking at monsters. The amount of monstrosity that is often just coded for people are uncomfortable around aging bodies or disabled bodies, which of course have their own overlap, uh, is huge. And so I, I have a lot of older readers who who would who enjoy my work because they see a humanization. Uh, there, but then I also have a ton of younger readers, younger queer readers who want to see, if not queer joy, queer empathy uh, in different mm -hmm. ways in fiction. Um, so a, a deep caring for characters, whether or not they win, um, is something I found uh, that across all of my readership, uh, people really enjoy. Is the, the deeper I go into the internal life of someone, whether they're growing or whether they're in a static position, uh, attracts people to the page, which is absolutely wonderful because nothing attracts me to the typewriter or to the keyboard more. Um, and so this is, this is a connection that's been many years coming, but I feel very blessed. It is really, it's, it's exciting to create something that people resonate with, but it's also, I mean, I, I get sort of a secondhand variant kind of pleasure from it. Cause as a, as a teacher, I, get to teach a lot of things um, to my students that selfishly I have chosen because it's like, I want to see how you're going to react. Like I mm -hmm. want to, I want to see how this thing lands with you. Um, and recently, like really recently um, you published in uncanny magazine, the story bad doors. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, it was a really sort of fortunate um, confluence of things where I was in the middle of a horror unit with my students mm -hmm. that we were just kind of getting out of longer texts in and moving into some short stuff and kind of about to do a genre change. And uh, I happened to be on Facebook the day that you announced that Bad Doors was going live on, on Uncanny. And I went, oh. Um, and so I clicked on it and read through it in about 10 minutes and then said, oh my God. Uh, and so I went to my course webpage and I deleted the entry for what the next day's homework was going to be. And I put bad doors in instead, um, which was fine because my students never do their homework in advance. So whatever. Um, and I was like, change of plans, dudes. We're reading this story, uh, for the next time we get together. And it was sort of fascinating to watch students unpack what was going on in this story that was so new. There was like, there was no, there was no Googling your way to like, what is the safe conversation to have about it? Right. Like the story was 48 hours into the world at that point, <laughs> by the time that class started the next time we met. So there was no hot take that they could like find to sort of hack it or anything. They had to kind of come at it as they were. And it was really interesting to see students kind of triangulate different experiences out of it. So for a little background here, Bad Doors is, in a lot of senses, a kind of allegory for COVID denialism. Mm. Um, there is a character named Cosmo who's had this strange experience of a sinister looking door that appears in his home. 
And his his roommate acknowledges that the door is there, but thinks it's kind of like fascinating and like, what's up with the door? And Cosmo's like, bro, random doors that appear in your house for no reason that are not attached to things that that they should be and go, we don't know where are not things that we should open. Let's avoid the door. <laughs> sure enough, Jesse disappears. Uh, Cosmo believes he's gone through the door. And it turns into something of a cat and mouse game with Cosmo sort of upending his life to avoid the door and to take caution in the face of it as people around him increasingly believe that he's being alarmist, uh, that he's making something out of nothing. And this is also happening in the landscape of the COVID crisis. Um, and so there is this kind of simultaneity of people around Cosmo behaving with a lack of caution as relates to their health with COVID and people gaslighting Cosmo about his experience of needing to exercise caution, not just about COVID, but about this door that appears to be following him and, and others in his life. And uh, in any case, the story created this really interesting moment for the students because there were some girls in the class who were like, I don't really see the COVID angle here as much, but I want to talk about being gaslit. Mm -hmm. And like, I want to talk about my experience as a woman with people telling me what I'm actually thinking and feeling. And other people were like, no, 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 no. I could totally see the COVID angle here, but also at a certain point to be like, you can't run from it. How about you just like ignore the door when it shows up? And other people being like, ignoring the door is insane. And so it was sort of this wonderful opportunity for all of the students to kind of become the points of view that are already dramatized within the story. Um, it was wonderful. Thank you for the story. Um, you made my job very easy that day. So. <laughs> oh, that's a magical response. I'm so glad it went that way. I yeah, I know, right? On that. Um, yeah, well, maybe we'll, yeah. Uh, maybe we'll shake something out for the future. But yeah. uh, a, a funny thing about that story is that I wrote that uh, pretty early in the pandemic, or I started writing that very early in the pandemic. And then some people told me like, dude, this is going to blow over in like two weeks and nobody's going to care <laughs> about this. Like, don't, don't bother. And then like a year into the pandemic, I'm, like, I'm really thinking about like finishing that story. And editors were like, dude, it's like, we've got vaccines. This thing's about to go away. Like you nobody's going to care about pandemic stories. You should yeah. just write something else. And just every time I tried to go back to that story and talk to anybody about it, uh, they would tell me like, Oh dude, like nobody, nobody's interested. Nobody wants to hear about that. Um, and, and that wound up fueling uh, needing to write some drafts of that story. Um, well, and also that to some extent that response lives inside of the story as well, yeah. <laughs> you know, with, with how the characters in the story, confront the door or don't confront the door or or yeah, yeah so. uh, and also if i can give a a, a a funny piece of backstory to the to the bad doors um that story is born of a very irrational fear i had when i was like five when i first encountered stories about weird portals to places uh because i was like because i remember like being five years old and being like that is terrifying. That could lead anywhere. And most of the universe's vacuum, you would be sucked into, you have very good odds being <laughs> sucked into space. Like, why would you open that? Like, oh, and also like, you know what's way bigger than the earth? The sun. What if you open it is the sun? Uh, there's a very, it's very unlikely that I'm just going to wind up at the Dunkin' Donuts going through this door. Yeah. Like, your odds are very poor. Uh, and then I, I had a wonderful conversation with the uh, the great writer, Maurice Broaddus, about how um, he would absolutely never open such a door if it were to appear in his home. But his wife totally would. Um, mm -hmm. And he, he started going through everybody he knew, being like, you wouldn't open it, right? 
Because I don't know if I want to invite you in my house if you do. <laughs> I don't want to put my okay. house at risk. And so we had this like wonderful test. conversation. Yeah, right. The door test. Um, <laughs> and so it just sort of lived in, in my head for years about uh, doing something with freestanding doors. Because I just they're one of my favorite tropes. Like, mm-hmm. I love in the drawing of the three, the Stephen King novel, about just a beach that's just got a door on it. No wall, just a, a, just a, a door frame and a door and a doorknob. And, like, that to me is more fascinating than 10,000 armed orcs standing on that beach. Because, like, what, <laughs> what does the door mean? Uh, and I'm, I'm always a sucker whenever there's a weird door. I mean, obviously, opening credits of the Twilight Zone is, uh, mm-hmm. is an all-time yeah. great uh, weird door. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sight, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving through a place of both shadow and substance of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. See, don't open that door. You just hear that mom like, go open that door. Uh, yeah. It's going to open I'm, the I'm sun curious. into your living room. I'm curious. <laughs> so Maurice, Maurice said he wouldn't open it. He said his wife would open it. Did he explain that his kids would open it and then pee into it? <laughs> I should check up with him. I should Is there, there's got to be a backstory there that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, that'll be that'll have to be on the B side of this uh, particular episode, I guess. <laughs> oh my gosh! So this is there's like no clean transition to this. Um, so I'm just gonna make like a hard swerve here. All so right. sorry. Time for a dirty transition. Um, I know, right? This is gonna be like a crazy U-turn. But you know, one of the things, yeah, you know, we've been talking about all sorts like finding the finding an audience and the audience's reaction and all sorts of things and part of i guess ah this is me trying to make a smooth u-turn here we go um part of the audience's reaction i think is also like how do we process stories and one of the things that i've always enjoyed about talking with you is you're really good at breaking down how the parts of a story function with one another in a way that can make me and I think probably other readers to think differently about a story. Mm. And this is, uh, this goes to that nightmare magazine article we were talking about in kind of green room time before. So a little background here. Um, and Shay Townsend, uh, Husbeast and I have been engaged in a project with, um, Sunbeast Corwin for, for a while now he's 16 and like, he wants to cut his teeth on some classic science fiction films. And so he saw alien uh, a few weeks ago and then aliens shortly after he just literally watched Terminator last night with us. And afterwards was coming up with his list of like his bucket list of what he wanted to see next. And he was like, John Carpenter's the thing. And, um, I want to see Terminator two. He says, but I, I really, really want to see Predator. Um, and so we had just been talking about Predator last night and in getting ready for things today. Um, I remembered your Nightmare Magazine article from 20, uh, from 2021, where you make an absolutely delightful and compelling case that in addition to not being an action movie per se, the Predator is a, is a slasher movie, but it's a slasher movie largely because Arnold Schwarzenegger is the final girl. <laughs> And that it's sort of, it's just cribbing, it's it's just sort of like a cribbed version of what slasher <laughs> movies do. Please hold forth on this, because I am so ready. <laughs> sure, well, I mean, I so I love Predator, and I love the Predator franchise. It's one of my favorite horror franchises. I think the horror community accepts Predator as one of its own in general. Um, the reason that Predator 1 doesn't usually read as a slasher movie to outsiders is that it preys on uh, masculine power fantasies rather than feminine wish fulfillment 
or feminine roles. Uh, the traditional slasher movies are the babysitters in jeopardy, the children are in jeopardy, the children at the camp are in jeopardy, your marriage is in jeopardy. Um, yeah, right, right. Like going on a date puts you in jeopardy in Friday the Thirteenth. Predator, you're in jeopardy if you work for the army. Um, yeah, and which is kind of not surprising on a certain level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. because I, the 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 boys in trouble in Predator are supposed to be safe because they are they're big box of GI Joes. It's uh, it's but, but, easy but to camouflage. Fight for freedom? Though. Do they fight for freedom wherever there's trouble? Probably not. Uh, I actually. think the U.S. Not government would say they are doing that. <laughs> uh, I think the U.S. government would say they're doing that. Uh, let's let's say uh, uh, Howard Zinn wouldn't agree. Um, <laughs> So the the characters in Predator largely uh, live up to the one of the big lies that American boys are taught and raised on, which is if you do violence, you'll be safe. Do the violence, be the doer of the violence, and then violence won't be able to get to you because you'll be the strongest. And Predator says, uh, no, there's, there's always somebody worse. There's always something more harmful and that, frankly, uh, your toy box is in jeopardy. And so it's it's a subversion of a different part of 80s Americana than your Halloween, your Friday the 13th, your Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and I find that I found that very compelling as a kid because, frankly, Fred Predator was one of the early horror movies that I got to see that resonated with me. It's like, all oh, right, like this movie makes them feel as unsafe as I always do. And I'm always trying to compensate for with my toy sword and my toy gun and locking the front door. Um, and I loved that message. I think that the franchise has sort of explored that going outward um, up to and including uh, the wonderful recent movie Prey in which uh, colonialists ain't safe. Look, like you, you <laughs> uh, and, and it feels a little cathartic, doesn't it? Uh, but there's a, there's a messiness to the catharsis in, uh, in the Predator series. Um, and that like even at the end of Predator 1 when he like, when Arnold Schwarzenegger goes total shirtless and gives himself this this uh home version of war paint and he's built his own weapons uh he loses that fight handily uh and then like at the very end like he's just laying on his back being like i guess i'll i guess i'll just do, do a bomb and blow us both up because that's all i've got left mm -hmm. in me um is mm -hmm. is there is no validation of your ability to do violence uh predator is about taking that away from you um and that just that's that's always that's always been fascinating to me is changing the lens of who gets stalked, um, yeah. especially within a genre. Because I'm very fond of slashers because I was raised on slashers. But I've always been bothered by like the huge uh, misogynist trend in them that, that we are going to commoditize uh, female vulnerability and pain for, uh, for sometimes questionable, sometimes great ends. I think Nightmare on Elm Street actually has something to say about that. But Predator has something to say about that when it's turned on masculinity. Uh, I adore that it did that. And if you want to kind of get all the, the, the details of that, the article is on nightmaremagazine.com. You can just uh, search for, for John Wiswell's work there, and it will be I'm, amongst his bibliography. I'm, I'm disappointed that, that Corwin's list doesn't include Ice Pirates. <laughs> uh, no, no, Ice Pirates didn't make it onto the list. Or no. the, the theatrical uh, release of Buck Rogers in the 25th century <laughs> mm -hmm. with, the, with the wonderful disco theme. I mean, it's kind of groovy. Yeah. 
No, we were having. What's that, we were... What's that, what's that movie with Sean Connery wearing the thong thing? Zardoz. Around his, yeah. Oh, Zardoz. Yeah. Zardoz. Yeah. Oh, Where, God. Where's that one on there? Where's the one with the uh, uh, the chin guy and and the chin in the in the space station thing? Remember that one? Uh, I'm afraid Kirk I know Douglas. too many men with chins. Kirk yeah, Douglas, I mean that's Kirk kind of endemic. And Farrah Fawcett in in the space. Yeah, you know, you lost us. I think. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's yeah, they, probably a. You know, can only Joe will know or Robert will know, and they'll they'll tell. Yeah, us. we'll hear about this in the in the patron Facebook page. Which, if you're interested in joining the patron <laughs> uh, Patreon account for uh, functional nerds, we'd be very happy to have you and have lots of different perks for you to choose from. Um, I'll, you have a Patreon as well, and so not to be forgotten, John Wiswell in there as well. Yeah, Patreon.com/slash Wiswell. Love to see you drop by. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, we, we were trying to come up with a list of like top 10, our personal as individuals, like top 10 science fiction films of all time. And mm. we each had some, some amount of overlap and some amount of difference and things. There was a brief pause in the argument about, does it have to be science fiction, science fiction, or like if it's a little bit more fantasy or if it's a little bit more horror or something like, will we count that? And so on. So we had to kind of like knuckle, knuckle box a little over the terms as one does. Um, but, you know, it's it's that ongoing argument about kind of like how do you narrow a field and sort of mm-hmm. make those those choices. And, you know, it's, it's it was an interesting discourse. It's still ongoing. Yeah, I, I, I think you guys should watch Howard the Duck so mm-hmm. that you then have to explore and explain how sex between Leah Thompson's character and Howard the Duck actually physically happens. Uh, I'm I'm planning actually on um, drinking bleach after we oh. end this episode because <laughs> yeah, you brought yeah. that up, and so yeah, that's not um, that's not a problem we'll ever have in terms of a conversation. Yikes! Oh boy, <laughs> I don't mind not having thought of that for like thirty years, and now now look what you've done, Patrick Louise. Well, it's not, me. It's not my fault. It's 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 James Gunn's fault for putting Howard the Duck in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Oh, see, so that's that's that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just passing the blame here yeah so we're we're kind of getting towards winding down time here but i do sort of feel like i would be remiss not to uh, mention again that you've been nominated for the hugo award for diy so congratulations for that Thank um you. this this has been a, a particularly unusual year for the hugos mm. um in a lot of different ways you know some of the process of Getting works nominated and getting the ballot out there was a little slower than people have become accustomed to. And and long before then, there was a lot of discourse about where Worldcon was going to be. We've talked about it some in, in Just Us episodes, we, which yep, are available to our patrons. Thank you. Um, yep. Yeah. And uh, – you know, one of the things that's emerged as well is people in the community kind of responding in different ways to where Worldcon is being held uh, in Chengdu uh, in China and the, the implications surrounding that and so on. Uh, SB Divya, who has also been on the podcast uh, relatively recently for Meru, um, her, uh, their most recent novel, they opted to um, remove themselves uh, from the list of editors uh, for um, escape pod and, uh, and to sort of decline on a personal level, that nomination and also to decline a, a short story, is it short story or novelette? I can't remember. Two, ha- two hands wrapped in gold novelette, novelette. Uh, nomination as a kind of, uh, protest in light of, uh, some of the things that have occurred politically and humanitarian wise, uh, in Chengdu. And it's just a very fraught discussion. And I imagine that, 
in the community that you're not a, now a part of as a nominee, that those are maybe discussions that you found yourself engaged in and having to kind of navigate. And so mm. can you, I don't know, can you give us some insight into sort of how this is, how you've been processing this? Sure. So it's not my favorite topic, but it is something that we, that we need to address as a community. Um, on the, on the smaller scale, uh, Worldcon has always been compelling to me. Uh, it's one of the first major science fiction conventions I went to. It's where I met Patrick in the first place. Um, and um, I feel blessed to have been nominated for the Hugo, for one Hugo or another for three years in a row, but I have never been able to attend uh, a Worldcon where the Hugo ceremony went down. Uh, the pandemic put a, put a, a damper on some travel. Um, and so I was pretty amazed to be nominated for a third year this year. Um, and as you said, uh, Worldcon this year is going to be hosted in Chengdu, which I don't. Uh, I want Worldcon to be in more countries than the United States all of the time. Uh, I don't yeah. think the World Convention should be the New York and Chicago Convention. Um, yeah. Is it convenient to me <laughs> if it's in Maryland and Philadelphia all the time? Yes, but it should be accessible to more people. Um, and frankly, uh, it, it, it almost never is in a country that isn't English speaking dominant. And science fiction and fantasy are much bigger than the English language. Um, so I, I very much support it being international, even if it becomes less accessible to me. Um, however, uh, the Chengdu. Worldcon has made some, I'm going to say, terrible decisions um, as a host, uh, particularly in the platforming of its uh, guests of honor. Um, and the first is Cheshen Liu, who's a very famous science fiction novelist in, in China, um, who has carried water for uh, the genocide against the Uyghurs uh, in China. And then the Worldcon uh, picked as its second uh, guest of honor, Sergei Lukyanenko, who is a famous Russian science fiction novelist who uh, frequently takes to social media to cheer on war crimes against the Ukraine and cheer on the murder of children in Ukraine. Um, now, for some personal information, um, I, many of my ancestors are Slavs. Uh, my great-grandfather immigrated uh, to this country uh, from Eastern Europe, and uh, he helped build one of the largest libraries of Slavic literature in the English-speaking world. Um, one of my first introductions to speculative storytelling was my grandmother telling me fairy tales of our ancestors from the Slavic cultures. Uh, and frankly, uh, I don't need that level of connection to Slavic culture to be horrified at what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Um, and I don't have that level of connection to the Uyghurs, and I didn't need it to be appalled at their treatment, at the crimes against humanity that are going on here. That Worldcon would decide that their guests of honor should be people who use that platform to celebrate wholesale murder is abhorrent, and I just can't be a part of it, no matter what they offer me to come partake in it. Um, it does tear me up inside. I would love to go and break bread with the many wonderful fans who live in that country and live in that area and that are excited to host that convention. Um, there are so many great critics there. There are so many great writers there, so many great fans there that I would love to meet and talk to and have lunch with. Uh, and more, I would love to go to a Worldcon where I'm a Yugo finalist, but 
it's not going to happen this year either. Um, I cannot participate in this. That's where I come down on it. And, um, and that's I, something yeah. very close to what Tracy and I said as well, because it's like the, the people who really get hurt are the fans. Yeah. Because they're badly served. Wonderful fans. Wonderful fans worldwide. And yeah. and then, unfortunately, the, the politics and the weirdness gets in the way of that. And it sucks. Yeah. I think the fan community deserved a different response from its con in this case, um, yeah. particularly if, you know, if, if the end goal of creating a truly world oriented world con is to make the world cons that happen in places other than North America, huge and fun and, and attractive celebrations to the rest of the world, then you don't, you don't serve that, um, by creating an atmosphere where you, are, are, are platforming people who carry water for these causes, like you said, nor by standing by them, creating an atmosphere where you take the creators who you're trying to honor and who you're trying to sort of shape the celebration in part around and putting them in this kind of a horrible rock and a hard place decision um, where, you know, they, it, if they need to kind of decide between matters of principle and matters of, of uh, professional practicality or pragmatism and it's very, it's painful. Um, I can say that, uh, you know, I've, I've beaten our drum many times over <laughs> for, for a fan cast nomination for functional nerds, but I don't feel, I don't feel entirely bad about not having to sit with that, um, as a, as a choice. There's, there was a certain advantage to not ending up on the short list in that respect. So I really appreciate you talking to us about it and with that, with that clarity and with that insight, because I think there are a lot of people in the community who are fans of SF who aren't connected to Worldcon enough or aware of Worldcon as a sort of community event enough to kind of appreciate this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it is. It is just something that we need to talk about, especially as an international community. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this Worldcon has been petitioned multiple times now to turn around on these decisions, and it's just doubled down. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's deeply hurtful to, I mean, many more people than myself. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well... Since I just took a big poop on, <laughs> on all of the, the, <laughs> the sort of fun and delight that we were having up to this point, I think we got to turn that ship around a little bit and, and do a palate cleanser with some picks of the week, bring some joy yeah. back. I think we should yeah. do picks of the week. Picks of the week. All right. Ta-da. Patrick, what's your pick? I actually have two. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, two recent episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds that gave me an incredible amount of joy. The first one is Those Old Scientists. And as we know, uh, for years now, Star Trek fans have called uh, Star Trek the original series, TOS. And in the Lower Decks uh, animated series... It's also called TOS because of those old scientists. Mm-hmm. That's that's what TOS stands for in Lower Decks. And so this was the crossover episode between the animated Lower Decks and the live action Strange New Worlds. And it's the greatest thing that has ever been made ever. And I absolutely loved it. I've already watched it three times. 
because I just kept keep getting stuff out of it. But the 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 gist is that you have uh, Boimler and Mariner traveling, you know, portaling into the Strange New Worlds era, <laughs> and and being there with those old scientists, and it's the it's just absolutely amazing. I love it. I adore it. I'm trying not to spoil it. But there's so much going on. One of my there's like a couple of favorite lines throughout it. One of them is the fact that Mariner's going, "Why do they talk so slow? Like, have you noticed mm-hmm. they talk really, really slow back here? Because in the animated show, it's just pop, 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 yeah. pop all the time." Uh, and the other <laughs> one is uh, Young Hot Spock, <laughs> which apparently was a uh, an improvised line <laughs> that 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 made it into the show. The other one was Riker. Uh, uh, there's there's a scene where Boimler is in uh, the ready room or something and, and Captain Pike has his saddle sitting there and Jack Quaid is really, really tall. And so he does the Riker thing where he swings his leg over and gets on the saddle and he says Riker when he does it. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. But it's, it's just, it's the funniest damn thing ever. I loved it. And then they uh, just uh, this last week, they did... Um, Subspace Rhapsody, which is the musical episode of Star Trek, which we've never seen before. And it's been, uh, I, f- I feel like it's been uh, positively compared to Once More with Feeling, the, the episode from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And one of, one of, the, one of the comparisons I saw talked about how uh, it, it, it's in Once More with Feeling, they knew that they were singing and that something was weird was happening. Why are we singing? And it's the same thing in this episode. Like they're singing and they're going, why are we singing? What's going on? How come? Like it's part of the explanation, right? Oh, we're singing because of X, Y, Z thing. So it's very different from say like a glee where they just burst into song and no one really pays attention to the fact that they burst into song and like they just move on. Hmm. Uh, in Subspace Rhapsody, they sing and then everybody goes, what the fuck's going on? Why are we singing? What? <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> How do we stop it? Let's not have that happen anymore. And and yeah, so it those two episodes to me have just been amazing. And the, the, the hard part is they put in between them a really dark, dark, dark episode that threw me. Oh, my God. Uh, about Klingon war stuff, but but yeah, <laughs> they kind of sandwich <laughs> the, between these two, and so those old scientists and subspace rhapsody, Star Trek: Strange New Worlds, Paramount Plus. Please go watch them; they were just absolutely fantastic. I can't believe we yeah. only have one episode left. Oh my god, I want to cry. Oh, just I will second that. I am not a big Star Trek person, except for Lower Decks. Oh, uh, Lower Decks is I so good. It is love so good. Lower Decks. And so when they announced this crossover, I'm like, all right, well, getting Paramount Plus again to watch one episode. I've now seen one episode of Strange New Worlds. It seems very charming. I, I may well have to go back, but I needed to see live action Boimler. Yes. Uh, and the Boimler scream. Ah! Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And and he did the, he did the walk that he does yes. in Lower Decks. Yes. He, he has this special walk that he does in Lower Decks that's supposed to like be faster. And he just sways back and forth. And he did that in live action, and I wanted to die. <laughs> <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I'm sorry. I just love how they, they – like the little bit of freak out on number one's part. Like – do you think he knows something about my future? Like, why is he freaking out? Why is he running away from me? What's happening in my future? 
John, how about you? <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll also bring a two-pack with me. Uh, one, uh, I've been wor- working a lot on uh, some book. It could be anything. Uh, and and to relax in my downtime, I've been playing. Uh, I've been revisiting a video game, one of my all-time favorites, called Hollow Knight. Uh, is, oh, oh, yeah. Um, it, is, it is basically you are a tiny grub warrior who is visiting the ruins of a once great hive, uh, a once great bug kingdom. Uh, it is full of fascinating world building that is largely understated, and you figure out how a lot of the world building has slotted together just as you explore. Um, it has an adorable art style because you are among the smallest and most vulnerable things in this world, armed with a tiny sliver of a nail as your as your broadsword. Um, and the traversal is amazing. The art is uh, absolutely gorgeous. Sound design is impeccable. Um, and I'm, I'm coming to the very end of it and now just like going to every corner of the world one more time, uh, like some kind of uh, murder tourist. Uh, just... <laughs> just visiting every every creature can i talk to anybody um and so i i definitely would say hollow knight has brought me joy once more um and i look forward to coming back in two or three years when i've forgotten enough of it that it'll be relatively new to me um it's such a fun game it really yeah um and then uh I got to see Makoto Shinkai's new film, Suzume. Uh, Makoto Shinkai is one of the uh, most popular animators and really directors in Japan right now. Um, he broke very big with his, his film, Your Name, um, and uh, movies like uh, Five Centimeters Per Second and um, uh, Weathering With You, which is a lovely story about falling in love with the rain god. Um, but in, in the case of Suzume, it is, uh, it is a great adventure with a mysterious hot boy to go close a bunch of evil doors, which is a very funny thing for me to have watched, uh, out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> but the, the wonderful wrinkle is that like, oh yes, I will, I will get closer to this mysterious hot boy and our adventures until he is transformed into a chair. Uh, and so <laughs> oh. you go on this, you go on this emotional journey with chair boy. Uh, and it's a three-legged chair, too, so it's the first ever disabled chair in the history of supporting characters. Uh, I, <laughs> I loved it. It has such a great spirit. The main character has, has a wonderful depth to her. The entire movie is absolutely gorgeously animated. Um, Shinkai has such a great uh, eye for lighting in 2D and 3D animation. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of very good humor. There's a lot of great action. Um, but I just it, it, he he has he has woven a magic spell once again, um, and I I strongly recommend uh, checking it out if you like anime feature films. See, I I, I have some trauma uh, when it comes to uh, chair characters because Chairface Chippendale you know did try to <laughs> destroy the moon. That's right. Nobody nobody defaces the moon in this movie. I can I guarantee you. <laughs> no. The moon is safe. <laughs> Such relief. <laughs> Well, so my uh, my pick of the week kind of circles back to some of what we were talking about before. I mentioned that we'd seen Alien and Aliens with Husbeast and the Boyo. And the reason why we decided to start watching that was not because we were intending on going this epic journey of like 80s SF stuff. <laughs> it was because we had bought a video game that our uh, video game, we'd bought a board game that was on David's like top 100 board game scratch off poster. That was one of his Christmas gifts. And it was part of his mission because he's down to like 30 of the 100 that he has not yet played. And uh, weeks ago when we were at uh, the dice dojo in downtown, uh, well, 
Edgewater in Chicago, we bought a copy of Nemesis. Nemesis Mm. is a semi-cooperative board game that I am shocked the creators have not yet been sued by whoever owns the rights to Alien at this point. I don't believe it's James Cameron anymore. I think it might actually be Disney. I think I think I think the Brood Queen might be a Disney princess. Um, but in any case, um, so Nemesis is very clearly Alien with the serial number scratched off, mm-hmm. and there are these creatures that are referred to as intruders rather than aliens. They are designed in an extremely Geiger-esque kind of way. The box is ridiculously heavy because it's full of these uh, proportionally designed, really cool um, uh, figures that represent all the different stages of the critters that are going around trying to kill you. And the premise of it is very much like the initial alien film that you you receive a distress signal that sends you off course in this ship and that all the characters uh, that you are playing in the course of the game represent a different type of role that would be probable to have on this sort of ship. There's a captain, there's a navigator, there's a scientist, um, there's the pilot, there's, um, there's a soldier, there's an engineer. And so in any case, you pick one of these roles. It gives you certain different kinds of abilities to take actions. And over the course of the game... Your ship is being attacked and infiltrated by these creatures. You may be attacked and it may try to lay eggs in you um, with face-hugging powers and such like. And you have two types of different goals. You have, you, you have a potentially public goal if you want it to be, and then you have your secret goal. And the only way to win the game is for your character to succeed in one or both of those goals. So, for example, I played the pilot. And my public goal was um, that the ship had to reach Earth because there's multiple destinations the ship could end up in. My private goal was one of two things. Either I had to die, but the ship still reaches Earth, or everyone but me has to die and the ship still reaches Earth. And this is meant, of course, to mimic some of the like in-house betrayal things that ends up happening in like aliens. And so it's kind of borrowing the DNA from both of those films and mashing it together. We're not you are playing together, but you are not necessarily each other's allies to the extent that you may portray yourselves to be, because you may be set up by someone else to, you know, go down that corridor and get axed because their card said that their secret objective is to make sure player four dies um, or whatnot. And so it has some interesting storytelling elements in it. The game design is really sleek and it learns very fast uh, and plays very well. Um, the, the different bits are super awesome. Um, it has a disabled character that you can play uh, in the course of the game. There's one of the characters is in a wheelchair. It, not in a way that actually has an impact on the mechanics, uh, but more for the aesthetic and for the, for the stand-up that you get and so on. And, um, but it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, I enjoyed it. We played it with a couple of friends of mine uh, and my husband and my son. And so if you have the opportunity to try out a semi-co-op battle strategy, run, hide, fight sort of game, I highly suggest Nemesis. But you might want to borrow a copy because it's like, whoa, it was like 120 bucks or something. Wow. (laughs) It's not cheap. All right. So that was quite an episode there. We uh, we covered a lot of ground. 
happy stuff, sad stuff, all the stuff in between. We're on an emotional journey of Wiswellian proportions. <laughs> Thank you, John, for coming on and seeing us. So you mentioned that you did a little book tour. Little. I mean, you went like halfway across the country, but um, you've, you've done a book tour recently. You've got stuff that's coming out uh, in the upcoming months in some small press publications and some magazines. And of course, you've got someone you can build a nest in coming out in April. Where can people find you and your stuff in the near future? Um, you can find me on most places on the internet. Um, if you'd like to check out my newsletter, it's johnwiswell.substack.com. If you'd like to find me on Twitter or X or whatever that website is called in the next couple of weeks, um, I'm currently just at Wiswell on there. I'm on Instagram at john underscore Wiswell. I'm at Patreon on patreon.com slash Wiswell. There's a running theme. Uh, and uh, yeah, just if you if you listen to this interview, yeah, say hi. I'd love to talk to you. All right. It's been awesome having you, John. We'll have to check back in with you once uh, someone you can build a nest in is out there. And, and uh, it takes flight because nest. Yeah. Yes. Once it hatches. I cannot wait for this monster to escape into the world. Uh, <laughs> I, would lo I would love to come back and talk to you all again. This has been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. All good things. Here we are at the end again. But there's some stuff you should probably know before you go. First, consider heading over to beyondthetrope.com and checking out their podcast. It's a lot of fun. Giles and Michelle have been around for nearly a decade now, I think, having fun chats with writers, artists, actors, and more. They put out a new episode every Tuesday and have something like 430 overall in the can, I think. As of this recording, it might be 431, I don't know. But that means there's plenty there for you to dive into. Second, if you liked this episode of The Functional Nerds, consider giving us a couple of stars on your favorite podcast platform or posting about this episode or any of our episodes on your favorite social media platform. Tell your friends about us. Have them come over. We would really appreciate that part. If you buy a book mentioned on the podcast, let us know on social media. Tag us. Tag the author. That's always so much fun, and it really, really drives home that we help sell books every once in a while. Now, if you really, really, really enjoyed this episode, you could head over to patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, that helps to keep the lights on. We like that. It's kind of hard to podcast in the dark. You can get access to some cool stuff like a pretty engaged and vibrant super secret Facebook group, a monthly virtual hangout, or even an extra episode. It's called the Just Us episode of the podcast. And it's exclusively at this point for our Patreon backers. So if you just want to hear Tracy and I talk about stuff, that might be where you need to go. Other than that, huh? What do we think about Mando season three? Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. 
if you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> When someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.